turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, we are in verses 1 through 12, and I'd like to begin by reading our passage aloud. 1 John, if you're new to the Bible, it's towards the very end, so find the end of the Bible and just turn left and you will run into it shortly. Beginning in verse 1, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. But there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life, and whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Amen. Now, most of life is about figuring out what really matters. If you think about uh, how we spend our days, so often we're spending our days trying to discern what really matters most. Uh, we all feel it at one level or another. How am I going to spend the next year? How am I going to spend the next month? How am I going to get through today? How can I make sure I get through this day doing what's really important and not things that are less important? Most of life is about figuring out what really matters. Free Solo is a documentary about a mountain climber named Alex Honnold who liked to push himself by climbing without ropes or any other safety measures. The film chronicles his attempt to scale Yosemite's El Capitan, 3,000 feet of granite. Climbing without ropes is always a bad idea. But to make matters worse, his longtime girlfriend, the love of his wife, had to drive away in tears the morning of his climb because she knew she might not ever see him again. Alex did not have a good sense of what really matters. He put a mountain before a woman. That rock will never love him. A sense of accomplishment will never return his affection. The thrill of climbing El Capitan without ropes is real, I suppose, for people interested in doing such a thing. 
but not nearly as real as laying down his life for a real person. Now, you don't have to be a Christian to get this. Uh, we all understand this at some level. I think, mo I think most of us would agree that Alex, what he did that day was foolish. If you don't agree, I don't know if it's worth us talking about it after the service. Uh, you don't need to be a Christian to know that it's important to devote your life to what really matters. However, and this is key, you do need to be a Christian to know what really matters. And I know that is a big statement. I know that is a brash statement, but it's true. If you want to know what really matters, you, you need to be a Christian. And that brings us back to our text. The Apostle John gets to the heart of what really matters in 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And I want to share his wisdom with you, which is God's wisdom for you, by asking you two questions. John is writing to Christians, so my questions for you are questions for Christians. So if you're not a Christian, I'm certainly glad you're here and want you to listen in. I just want you to know that I'm, I'm asking these questions of Christians right now. So first, Christian, do you know if you're alive? Do you know if you're alive? And second, do you know why you're alive? Do you know if you're alive? That's the first question. And do you know why you're alive? That's the second question. And my prayer is that as I answer these questions, we'd all come to know what really matters in life. So first, do you know if you're alive? Now, I'm not asking if you know you're breathing right now. Right? I'm not engaging in some philosophical question about whether or not you're actually a brain in a vat. Right? That's not what I'm getting at right now. I'm asking, uh, do you know if you're spiritually alive? Right? Do you know, really know that you are a Christian? John wants you to know. He wants you to know. And he realizes that it's possible, and this is where 1 John gets so tricky, he realizes that it's possible to go through life thinking that you have faith in God when really you don't. We don't really have saving faith. You know, John assumes his readers know that we are all born spiritually dead. In verses 1 through 5, he tells us how we can know that if we've been raised to, to spiritual life, how we can know if we've been born again, how we can know we're alive. Look at verse 1 and be on the lookout for this phrase or related phrases, born of God. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Now, maybe you know of Nicodemus. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes up to Jesus and tells Jesus how amazed he is by all the miracles and signs that Jesus has done. And Jesus doesn't say, thank you. Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's Jesus' response to Nicodemus, who is overwhelmed by Jesus' work Jesus says, you can't truly see my work. You can't truly see my kingdom 
unless you've been born again. So Jesus teaches that each and every one of us is born. We come out of the womb spiritually dead. And this is a strange thought. That's a humbling thought if you've never realized it before, that we're born spiritually dead and therefore unable to love and serve and honor and obey God in any real sense. That's what Jesus is teaching. And it's not what we by default believe, because if I can change the metaphor for a moment, most of us think of ourselves as fixer-uppers. We are solid homes in need of new floorboards and a fresh coat of paint. We know we're not who we ought to be, but we figure a little more church, a little more Bible reading, a little more holiness, a little more physical purity, and that will fix us right up and make us right before God. Jesus says we're not fixer-uppers. We are condemned buildings, good only to be raised, that is R-A-Z-E-D, toppled, kaput, and have something entirely new built in our place. Now, if you're a Christian, it's because you've been rebuilt. Or to go back to Jesus' metaphor, it's because you've been born again. But how can you know you've been born again? How can you know you are now spiritually alive? And John provides us the answer right here in verses 1 through 5. In one sense, we have all of 1 John in just five verses. So if this is your first day at Mount Vernon, congratulations, you get the entirety of this series in five verses. John gives us here three tests to help determine whether we're truly alive. The first is the test of doctrine, and specifically the doctrine that we've been thinking about all morning already, the doctrine of Christ. Look at verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. John is writing to the church in Ephesus. Some had split off denying that Jesus is the Christ. Those are individuals who respected Jesus as a good man, but they could not affirm he was born the only begotten Son of God, that he was born the Christ, the Son of the living God. Right, that's the test of doctrine. Is that what you believe? The second test is the test of love. Look again at, at verse 1. Everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now, John usually focuses on brotherly love, but here he mentions love of God and brotherly love and the love of God's children. The two go hand in hand. Right? You can't love me if you don't love my family. Right? You say you love me to my face, but if you're not loving my family, you're not really loving me. And that goes, that goes with everyone here who's part of a family. Right? We're a team. We go together. You love one, you love all. It's just the way it works. Right? The two go hand in hand. You can't love God without loving God's family, without loving God's church. The two go hand in hand. Now, the third test is the test of holiness. Look there again at verse 2. By this we know 
that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. How we, how we live matters, John says. God is God. And because God is God, he has the right to establish what is right and what is wrong. And God is a fountain of love and wisdom, so we can trust that his commandments are good because he is good and they're good for us. So like a parent who intuitively knows that fruit and vegetables are good for the health and well-being of his child, so God knows what is good for us. God knows how we're to live, how we're to walk. God knows. His commandments are good for us. And holiness, which is the, the keeping of God's commandments, holiness is evidence the believer is alive. Now, we've all seen this before in 1 John, but John is especially clear about one thing in these verses that I've just kind of walked through. He's especially clear about one particular aspect of this idea of three tests to determine whether or not you're really a Christian. Again, faith, love, and holiness. What he's really clear about here is that these are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. It's not enough to have one or two. You have to have all three. They're inseparable. They go together. If we're truly alive, we will not separate faith and love. We won't separate the two. A testimony, we're going to hear testimonies a little, bit, a little bit later in the service. A testimony is an explanation of how someone became a Christian. And every Christian has his or her own testimony. And over the years, I have heard hundreds. Many of them begin kind of like this. When I was young, I thought I was a Christian because I believed Jesus is the Christ. But as I got older and began to see how I lived and whom I loved, I came to realize I wasn't really a Christian. I can't tell you how many testimonies I've heard that begin like that. Because those individuals came to realize, unless you have love, your confession of faith is worthless. It's, it's hollow because love is a distinguishing mark of a Christian. Verse 1, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Right? Again, to love God's to love God is to love God's people, his children, the church. And I'd like to make this practical in, in, in one way that pertains particularly to Mount Vernon Baptist Church. Next Sunday, the elders will lay out a timeline for how we can begin the process of moving back to what for us is a normal church rhythm a normal way of doing church. This is abnormal. Ropes in the pew are abnormal. Masks over the face are abnormal. Being separated in different rooms, abnormal for Mount Vernon. I recognize not abnormal for a lot of churches, but abnormal for us. Live streaming, abnormal. Thankful we can do it right now, but abnormal. 
So next Sunday, uh, during our, our members meeting, our church and conference, we're going to lay out a timeline, uh, admittedly tentative. I mean, we don't know the future, right? Only God knows the future. But we're going we're gonna to present a timeline. Now, for some of you, that timeline will seem overly aggressive. For others, it will seem too little, too slow. And this is because there are a range of opinions in this church about the severity of COVID-19 and the importance of masks and social distancing. And even as I say this, I couldn't be more thankful for you. You have made this. For this particular pastor, I have not wanted to quit ministry in 2020 or 2021. And I give God and you the credit for that. So thank you for making this relatively easy. And yet I want to say that as a church, we need to respect people who differ over how to address this very thorny issue. Some of you think masks help. Some of you don't. I hear you. But I'm asking all of you on both sides to love and persevere with other Christians who disagree with you when it comes to the best path forward. Both sides, I want you to hear me here, both sides are trying to honor the Lord. No side is getting up and thinking, how can I not love my neighbor today? I know, I'll wear a mask so my neighbor can't see my face. I won't wear, wear a mask so my neighbor thinks I'm trying to infect them. No one, no member of Mount Vernon is thinking that. We are trying to follow the Lord as individual Christians as, as best we can under circumstances that, Lord willing, we will not face again in our generation. If we cannot bear with Christians who disagree with us on how to address COVID-19, how can we be sure we are loving them? How can we be sure, to John's point, that we are truly saved? All right. If we're truly alive, we won't separate faith and love. Also, if we're truly alive, we won't separate love and holiness. Look again at verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So it's not enough to love, right? Your life must be marked by a passion for holiness. In 1 John 4.20, John said that we cannot love God if we don't love our brother, if we don't love one another. Right? Loving your church family, according to 1 John 4.21, is a commandment. It's a commandment from the Lord. But here, interestingly, in verse 2 of chapter 5, John reverses the order. He says, we can't love the children of God unless we love God and obey his commandments, our, bro our brothers and sisters. Unless we, we can't love them unless we love God and obey his commandments. Now, why does John reverse the order? I think it's to drive home this idea that, that love and holiness are inseparable, absolutely inseparable. You cannot have love if you don't have holiness. And, 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 and obeying the commandment, right, to, to love your brother and your sister, right, that's, that is holiness. Now, these are inseparable, love and holiness. Not everything in life is inseparable, right? A, a good sports team can slack on defense if it has enough offense, right? Or a great defense can make up for a so-so offense 
This isn't true in the Christian life. We have to, I know I'm speaking absolute, friends, but I'm only speaking, I think, faithfully to what John is saying. You must have both love and holiness. The two go hand in hand. One of the simplest truths, I think, to understand, but the hardest to accept, is that God cares about our holiness. I know that's the type of thing you're used to hearing in church. I know you, you know it intellectually. But I think one of the hardest things to accept is how passionate God is about our holiness. Yes, we are saved by grace. But having been saved by the grace of God, God then demands we live for him. He demands all of our lives to be lived in his service for his glory and according to his standards. We're to obey his commandments. And this is a non-negotiable in the Christian life. Right. But why? Why? Why does God demand obedience? Right. Why is holiness such a big deal? Now, I know that not all of you are asking that question. I get that. But I guarantee there are some of you that are asking that question. And if you're not asking that question like, intellectually, you're asking it morally by your lack of holiness. In other words, a lack of holiness betrays your heart and your mind. It says you are not convinced that God is truly passionate for your holiness. And, and, and your life may very well prove it. So why is holiness such a big deal? I want to very quickly give you three reasons. First, because holiness shows whose team you are on. Holiness shows whose team you are on. I'm going to listen to how Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. It is through personal holiness that we show the world that, 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 that our Father is holy. We're, we're on his team. We're holy because he is holy. I recently saw a kid's, track a, a, a kid's track relay, and one of the sweet little girls grabbed the baton and then proceeded to run in the opposite direction. Now, if she, we would say, bless her heart. Right? I'm from Oregon, and I know that. If she continued persevering in the opposite direction, I would not know whose team she was on. It didn't, didn't matter what clothes she wore. She's, she's going the, the, the wrong way. I have no idea. Well, holiness is running in God's direction to show that we are on his team. He is our God. His rules are our rules. His holiness is our holiness. The world may not like the rules. There may be moments when we don't like the rules. But the moment we discard those rules, the moment we decide to live life our own way, we are running the wrong direction. And if we persevere in that race, we will prove with our lives that we are not born of God. Let me give you another reason why holiness is so important. Because holiness commands God to the world. 
Holiness commends God to the world. Listen again to Peter. This time, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Peter writes, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against the soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, that is the world, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That is, glorify God at the end of the world when Jesus comes back. Now, it's often argued from this text that we should do acts of charity, acts of benevolence, so that the world, the Gentiles, have a high opinion of God. In other words, they may not like our doctrine, but if we can do good deeds in their presence, well, maybe when Jesus comes back, some of them will in fact have been saved because of the witness of our, of our, of our charitable actions. And, and while I think that's true, I think on the basis of 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12, there's more to it than that because our good deeds are not merely handing out bread, but what does Peter say? Abstaining from the passions of the flesh. So I take that to mean that fits of rage, abstaining from gossip, abstaining from foul speech, abstaining from sexual sin is what actually can commend God to the world. And there will be times when the world dismisses our pursuit of purity our desire to be holy is puritanical, moralistic, repressive, and outdated. But I just want to say, give it time. Give it time, and the world will see that those, that those men who are faithful to their wives for the entirety of their lives commend God and commend goodness in a way the world knows nothing of. And those women who are faithful in singleness or in marriage, faithful for the entirety of their lives, their lives say something about God that will commend our Lord to a world that on the face of it cares nothing about our ethics. Give it time. If our church can be known as a church, for example, that values women, that honors marriage, that walks in honesty and integrity. Over time, even our non-Christian neighbors will be amazed by our lives and amazed by the God we worship. Holiness commends God to the world. That's one reason why it's so important. I'll give you one more reason. Holiness proves who we love. Holiness proves whom we love. Jesus said this. Jesus tied our love for him with our obedience of him. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. But holiness for the Christian is always an act of love. It's always an act of love. It's, it's true and right to say that we must be holy, right? It, that's true and right. So... I'm the preacher, you're the congregation, I say to you, you must be holy. And you know that's true. You know that's right. 
But it's not the whole truth. Because our obedience to God is not fundamentally the fruit of duty. It's the fruit of love, our love for God. And that makes sense of the second half of verse 3. His commandments are not burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome. It doesn't always feel this way, does it? It can feel hard to pursue holiness. Right? Much easier to hear a sermon on holiness than to live it out. Hard to obey God's commands. Holiness is not, not easy. Obedience is a struggle. In, in what sense are, are God's commandments not burdensome? Well, I like to repeat a story told by Pastor Charles Spurgeon about a farmer and about his prized carrot. I'm going to give you part of it now again. This farmer lived in a great kingdom under the rule of a great king, a benevolent king, a king who kept his farmland safe and secure. And the farmer loved this king, loved him, honored him, respected him. And when that garden one day produced a marvelous carrot, a grand carrot, that farmer knew exactly what he was going to do. He was going to dig up that carrot and present it to the king and offer it to the king because there was no Bitcoin. So he offered it to the king as a token of his love and of his affection. And that farmer offered up that carrot because he loved that king. And we would say that that act was not burdensome to the farmer. Now, does that mean it was easy? Well, no, it wasn't easy. I mean, gardening is not easy. Farming is not easy. Plowing the soil is not easy. Harvesting produce is not easy. Uh, apparently, this was a giant carrot, so I presume that loading it on a cart is not easy. Taking it to the court is not easy. If he didn't like to speak in public, telling the king how much he loved him in front of everybody isn't easy, but he did it. It was hard, but it wasn't hard. It was burdensome, but it wasn't burdensome. Why? Because he genuinely and deeply loved the king. It wasn't easy for Jacob to work for Laban for seven long years. Why did he do it? Because he loved Rachel. It's not easy for a young man to buy a diamond ring, a diamond engagement ring to give to the woman he loves. A lot of work goes behind that. It's a big expenditure, but it's not burdensome because he loves her. And holiness is like that. It's hard. There are moments when the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There are moments when your desires are not in line with God's desires. I get that. This is in heaven. Holiness is hard. No ropes in heaven. Maybe, except for maybe like swinging over a river and splashing in. I'll let that sink in for a moment. <laughs> just like that farmer presented his best carrot to the king, just like Jacob presented his best years to Laban, you, Christian, are to present your, the best of yourself to God. That's holiness. Romans 12:1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. If we are truly alive, we won't separate faith and love. We won't separate love and holiness, and we won't separate holiness and faith. Holiness and faith 
are two sides of the same coin. Look at verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Right. Who are those who overcome the world by walking in holiness and love? Right. It's those who have faith. John ends the paragraph the way he began the paragraph. Do you believe? Do you have faith that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of God? It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how loving you seem. It doesn't matter if you obey all of God's commands if your faith is not in him. David Foster Wallace gave the commencement address in 2005 at Kenyon College. And in this address, Wallace, who is not a Christian, said that it doesn't matter what you worship so long as you worship something greater than yourself. Now, he said that that could be Jesus Christ, but he also said it could be Allah. It could be the Wiccan goddess. It could be the Four Noble Truths. He said it doesn't matter. As long as you're not worshiping you, as long as you're worshiping something outside of you, that's good enough going to get you a passing grade. Wallace, obviously not a believer. Wallace, Wallace, right to argue we all worship something. Wallace, wrong to argue that something can be anything. Whom you worship matters. You must have faith. And your faith can't be anywhere. Your faith can't be in anyone. Your faith must be in Christ alone. Right, so do you know if you are alive spiritually? These are the tests, and they are inseparable. Now, Anna and Jacob, could you please raise your hand? Because I have no idea where you are. Still don't know. Where's Jacob? Pausing for a long time. Is he in the other room? All right, Anna and Jacob, if you're in the line of my voice, you're about to be baptized. And this is because we believe that God saved you. Let these three tests serve you. Hey, Jacob. Yeah, everybody, that's Jacob. He's about to be baptized. <laughs> Let these three tests serve you. Don't forget them. Right? Do you love God and his church? How do you know? Do you keep his commandments? Where is that hard? Do you believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God? How is your faith visible? Those are the three tests. And may God use the answers to these questions to encourage you in the days ahead. Right, now I'm asking two questions to get to the heart of what really matters in life. The first is the one I've spent the most time on. Do you know if you're alive? And here's the second. I'm going to spend less time here. Do you know why you're alive? Look at verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself, Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. 
These are some of the most difficult verses in the entire New Testament, and I have, for some strange reason, not allotted a great deal of time to them. Think of these verses as an explanation or a footnote to verse 5. When we say that Jesus is the Son of God, what are we saying and why do we believe that? This paragraph provides the answer. When we call Jesus the Son of God, we are not saying he is a child of God the way you or I are children of God. No, as we've said again and again this morning, Jesus is the eternal Son of God. God the Son incarnate in the flesh. Jesus has always existed. He is uncreated. There never was a time when Jesus was not. So when John says in verse 6 that he is Jesus the, the Christ, Christ is not his last name. It's his title. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the King, the King of the universe. To have true faith in Jesus is to have faith in Christ, the King. Now, what John says in verse 6 requires some explanation. He says, Jesus came. This Jesus, this Christ came by water and by blood. By water probably refers to Jesus' baptism. On that day when Jesus was baptized, the Father spoke from heaven announcing that Jesus was not merely a good rabbi. Jesus was not simply a good carpenter. He wasn't simply a man. He was, the Father said, my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. How could Jesus been, have been so pleasing to the Father had he not already lived a perfect life? the only one who ever had lived a perfect life. So at the very start of his ministry, God the Father made it clear by the water on the day of his baptism that his son was special, that he'd never sinned, by implication that he never would sin. Again, how else could Jesus have been pleasing to his father? Jesus wasn't just any man. He was God in the flesh. And Jesus was baptized to symbolize his not his cleansing from sin, for Jesus had no sin to be cleansed from. He was baptized upon his profession of faith in God, his Father, as an example for us. One of the reasons we practice adult believers' baptism is because Jesus was baptized as a believing adult. Look again at verse 6. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. Just as water is a word to represent the start of Jesus' ministry, the day Jesus received baptism at the Jordan, blood represents the end of Jesus' ministry, at least his ministry on earth, the day he paid the price for our sins at Calvary. Jesus didn't merely please the Father by living a perfect life, again, something we learn at his baptism. No, Jesus pleased the Father by giving up his life, at Calvary, on the cross, for sinners like you and like me. He came, in other words, not merely by the water, but by the water and the blood. And so in verses 1 through 5, we're taught how we can know we're alive, born of God. But in verses 6, there we see why we're alive. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, which we see at his baptism, giving up his life for sinners, which we see at the cross. He came by the water and by the blood. We're saved by his life 
and by his death. And if I could pull back for a moment so as not to get lost in the weeds of these difficult verses, what John is arguing so wisely and so pastorally for those of us who get caught up in verses 1 through 5, about, am I a Christian? Do I have enough fruit in my life? Am I loving enough? Am I holy enough? Am I believing enough? John says, don't forget the solution to your problem is not in you. The solution to your problem is in him. There is no human solution to the problem of sin. That's what John is getting at in these verses. The other day I was surprised to hear one of my kids say, I'm hangry. Hangry. It's a combination of hungry and angry. And I take it to be an excuse for bad behavior. I'm angry. But it's not really my fault because I'm hungry after all. But the hunger is not the problem. Hunger simply magnifies what's already there. And friends, you guys know this. This has, been a, this has been a good year for the gospel. Because if there was ever a year where we came to understand the reality of sin in our lifetimes, it has certainly been these last 12 months. The past year in America has been like a magnifying glass on the human heart, the heart of our country, the heart of our world. We are debating issues of race and politics and health policy. We've got different opinions about how to assess our nation's history, how to solve our nation's problems, how to chart a course for our nation's future. Different opinions have always existed. That's not a 2020 thing. But the trials of the past year have magnified them, and these trials have magnified our hearts. What do you see when you look out at the world? Let me put it another way. What does the human heart do when it doesn't get its way? It attacks, it fights, it slanders, it berates, it sulks, it withdraws, it hates. And look, I'm not trying to be Pollyanna. I don't think the world's problems are going to be solved by finding a way to be nicer or kinder to one another, though, though I am all for a little bit more civility. But forget the world for a moment and think for a moment about yourself. Think about your own problems. Think about your own issues. What John is saying is our sin is so deep and so egregious and so intractable that there is no human solution. There's no human solution to the problems that plague humanity. There's no human solution to the sin that plagues your life. Your envy won't go away when you buy a nicer car. There will always be a nicer car. Your pride won't evaporate once you get a better job. There will always be a better job. Your lust won't disappear when you get married. Your insecurity won't be solved by therapy. When you realize the depth of life's problems, it can be hard not to be hopeless. Just so hard. It's hard to believe that there's a solution. There was this writer in the 20th century who said this about life. Life is crime, theft, jealousy, hunger, Lies, disgust, stupidity, sickness, volcanic eruptions, earthquakes, piles of corpses. What can you do about that? And I think that's where a lot of our neighbors are right now. Like they're turning on the news. They're seeing the problems. And they're saying, what can you do about that? What's going to solve that problem? They may know the problem. John knows the solution. 
You can't do anything about that. You need the water and the blood. In other words, the problem of your sin is so deep, so devastating, you need someone to help you. You need someone to save you. If you're a Christian, you're alive because life is a gift from God. It's not something you worked for. It's something you received. Jesus, the one man who didn't deserve to die, he died. He gave up his life so that you could live. Jesus gave up his life so that we could receive eternal life. Look again at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Right? There's no human problem. There's no human solution to the problem of your sin. There's a divine solution, the water and the blood. Jesus explained, I, I know this is strange for some of you. Aaron, how can, how can it be that life comes from death? I mean, Aaron, I was with you on the love and the holiness and the faith. That sounded great. I can get behind that. But man, it's getting late and you're talking about death and I'm just not tracking with you. All right, try to come back and listen to what Jesus said in John 12, 24. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's Jesus saying that the, the divine solution is death. It's the blood. That's our hope. Jesus' death on the cross. There is hope for the world in Jesus' death. He died so that we might have life. On that cross, he bore the sin of those who are unrighteous so that we might in him be declared righteous. But for us to live so that we could love and have faith and walk in holiness, he had to die. Why do we live? Because he died. John is such a careful theologian. He's such a careful pastor. He doesn't want anyone to get the wrong idea. He doesn't want anyone to walk away from 1 John thinking that a little more theology, a little more love, a little more holiness is going to get you into heaven. It doesn't work that way. We need Christ. We need the water and the blood. Only when you see this, only when you believe this, to use the words of John there, only when you have the Son of God will you know why you are alive. It's because the seed died and brought a harvest of life. It's because the Savior gave up his life and rose again so that you might live. Brothers and sisters, the blood testifies to this. The water testifies to this. But you know who else testifies to this? The Spirit. So if you're sitting here at the end of this sermon thinking, Aaron, this all sounds very good, but I don't know how that could ever be me. I hear what you're saying. You're saying it's not about me. I, I hear that. But Aaron, you don't know me. You don't know what goes through my mind when I'm alone. You don't know what I think about when I'm, on, when I'm in my bed laying down at night. You don't know the things that I've done. 
John says, life comes by water and by the blood. They testify to the truth of the gospel, but so does the spirit. And that means the spirit of God can help you. There is no human solution to the problem of your sin. There is a divine solution. The Father's plan of salvation, accomplished by Jesus at the cross, is made effective in our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. Anna and Jacob are about to share their testimony to you. And my guess is that there are people in their lives who have been influential in bringing them to saving faith. But it was the Spirit who opened their eyes that they might see and testify to the truth of the gospel. We are a people who need the Spirit of God. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that John is so clear that we can know we know Jesus as we walk in holiness, as we profess faith in Christ, as we love you and our brothers and sisters in Christ. But right now, we're even more thankful for the reason believers are alive, because of the water and the blood, truths impressed in our hearts because of the Spirit of God. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.